Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder and CEO of Black Spectacles. During our webinar today, we're gonna to review some of the most important concepts of project management uh, and share some practice exam questions as we review a mock exam with Mr. Mike Newman. Uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, Black Spectacles is the first ever NCARB approved online test prep provider for all six of the ARE 5.0 divisions. Uh, we offer comprehensive test prep for the ARE with video lectures, practice exams, flashcards, and virtual workshops, all available online. And with uh, memberships available uh, either for individual architects or firms or AI chapters or schools. So you can head to blackspectacles.com and click ARE prep uh, to find out more information about our ARE study materials. As a reminder, we've launched our ARE guarantee. We're so confident that if you use our expert membership to the fullest, that you will pass the ARE. And if you don't, we're putting our money where our mouth is and paying for your retake. So to learn more about how to qualify for the guarantee, uh, go to blackspectacles.com and under the heading ARE prep, you'll find the details on our ARE guarantee. Uh, and I just shared the link in the chat box here on GoToWebinar for, for that. Um, as I mentioned, we have group memberships as well to learn more about how you can get your whole firm to, uh, on a membership and have your boss pay for it. You can go to blackspectacles.com and head to our pricing section. Again, just shared a link for that as well. Our next session, um, our next ARE live broadcast will be on December 16th of 2021. And we're going to host a panel of female architects who are going to discuss the unique challenges women face in the architecture field. Uh, and specifically around uh, getting licensed. Our guest speakers will share stories about how they've overcome various obstacles in their careers, as well as action items uh, for everyone in the field to foster more inclusive and equitable space. So it should be a really awesome session. Today, we're gonna be engaging exclusively in our online ARI community. So head over to that thread if you haven't already. Uh, it's community.blackspectacles.com. And um, let's see, you can look for the section, or you can cover that big button at the top that says ARE Live. And then right at the top, you will find um, today's session. And everyone who posts in that thread uh, today will be eligible to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. So head over there now. Um, and all you have to do is just say something like, hello. You don't even have to have a fancy question if you don't have one. Um, and uh, you'll be eligible for the free t-shirt. Of course, the reason why we have that isn't just so you folks say hello. It's ultimately so that you have um, a resource uh, whenever you're studying, when you're thinking about preparing to study. It's a great place to go to uh, to ask questions. We have uh, licensed architects on staff who answer uh, the questions uh, that folks post there. So it's a great resource and it's available and free to everyone. Uh, so let's see. So that is, uh, that's what's going on with the community. Again, that's all um, our, um, uh, our campaign there to, uh, to offer you a free t-shirt uh, or to, to win a free t-shirt uh, if you post over there today. Our guest uh, for today's session, of course, is Mike Newman. He is a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, as well as the founder of Shed Studio, and he's an instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep video lectures. So, Mr. Newman, thank you for joining us today. I'll hand it over to you. Okay. Uh, sounds good. I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, we're going to just jump right in for our project management uh, discussion. And uh, let's see if we can get this to go here. All right. So we're just gonna do a few quick questions and we'll use them as a way to sort of have some discussions around uh, just uh, the kinds of issues that are likely to come up when you start thinking about project management. Uh, project management is obviously looking at a whole timeline of a project. And so uh, all of the issues that uh, kind of beginning to the middle to the end of, of how you're putting together uh, a team, a project, uh, understanding different roles, all of that. Um, and uh, it has a pretty wide array of possible questions, but they're always going to be in that management kind of thinking. So um, uh, be less focused on detail and more focused on kind of uh, how, you're, how you're managing people, how you're putting things together, how you're thinking about a project overall. So, okay, let's, uh, let's dive in. Uh, we have question number one here. The owner wants to make sure that they get the lowest cost for construction for their three-story village hall project. They've asked the architect for a recommendation for the project delivery method. What should the project, 
what should the architect suggest? So project delivery is obviously the term that we use for uh, the uh, overall process for how a project goes from uh, an idea to uh, something that's constructed. Uh, so these four here are uh, four examples. There's a number of other uh, potential uh, project delivery uh, types, but let's just look at these four and kind of think about these for just a quick second uh, and kind of see what we what we can sort of divine out of uh, just kind of considering them for a minute. So the first one here, design, bid, build. Uh, so you can imagine that one, there's a moment in time uh, and in that moment, there's an owner and the owner has a contract with an architect. So the owner architect agreement. Uh, and then that architect is then going through a design phase. And as they're going through that design phase, they're gonna do you know, schematic design, they're gonna do design development, uh, they're gonna get into the contract documents, uh, and then eventually uh, they're gonna get to the bidding phase. So there we have the design bid, uh, and at that point, the bids are gonna go from being a series of different uh, potential contractors to actually a chosen bidder. Uh, I'm gonna sort of do it as a little symbol here, like a little line, uh, and there's gonna be an owner contractor agreement. Um, that little symbol with a little line there saying, yes, this is the moment where that happens. That's potentially actually quite a long set of negotiations. Uh, so it's not necessarily just happens in a day. You might get a bidder chosen, then still be over budget and have to do value engineering and all of those kinds of things. But essentially, there'll be a moment after the bidding process where finally uh, a, a bidder is chosen. And then from that point, that's all the construction, or in this case, we're going to call it build. So design, bid, build, design, bid, build. Uh, and at some point, you're going to finish the project after sort of regular meetings and all of that going along. Uh, so there's going to be a bunch of advantages and disadvantages to this. One of the disadvantages to this one uh, is it's a long time. Uh, you're, you're not getting even any contractors involved until all those months of design have happened. Uh, you, you're stretching out the whole process because of that. Uh, so it takes a lot of time. So if time was the factor, this would be a bad idea. Uh, one of the good things about design, bid, build is there's plenty of opportunity for discussion back and forth with the owner. So at the end of SD, you've got a conversation happening. At the end of DD, you've got conversations happening. You have all sorts of opportunity to have conversations along the way so that the owner can really make sure that you're providing the building that they really want. Uh, and then you get to the point where you're bidding it out. You're probably going in for a permit. You're doing a few other things. But you're also bidding it out to a number of different bidders. And so I can be pretty darn sure that that process is going to get me a range uh, from a high bid to a low bid. Uh, I'm gonna have a lot of information about bidders and what the cost of the project is going to be. Uh, the upside of that is I have a lot of information. The downside is I don't really understand the cost, and that's supposed to be a dollar sign there, uh, until halfway through, not halfway through, because construction takes longer, but well into this process, all the way at the end of the design process is when I actually understand the cost of the project. So that's pretty interesting. Let's think about that one. We'll come back, we'll take a look at B. So look at Fast Track. So right off the bat, I'm just gonna tell you Fast Track is not the answer because Fast Track is ridiculous. Uh, there's no reason ever to do a Fast Track project unless of course there's a reason to do it. So I'll give you a quick example. Uh, what if you're doing a school and the students are going to show up in on September 1st and you've got to be ready. So I may just do a sort of ridiculous thing, knowing that's going to cost us extra money, uh, but I'm going to do it because the schedule is all important. So let's do a quick little diagram of fast track. So you can kind of imagine I maybe as my architecture team is uh, designing the excavation and foundation uh, package, and then we finish that and it starts being built. And while that's being built, we're then designing the uh, uh, 
uh, frame system for the project. And then once that's done, it's now being built. Uh, and then while that's being built, we're designing the skin system uh, for the process. Well, okay, and then that's being built, uh, et cetera. So you see you're designing while it's under construction. Clearly, you're going to make mistakes because you haven't designed it yet. Uh, and so you're putting in plumbing locations and things as sort of a best guess. Uh, and you're going to make mistakes. So it's built into fast track that mistakes will be made. Uh, but if the schedule is all important, well then, okay, you can make those mistakes. Uh, and you know, one classic example would be, let's say you're doing a project in you know, downtown San Francisco or New York or Chicago, and the carrying cost of the land might be so much that uh, if you could save, say, eight months or a, a year of construction time, uh, you know, you might be saving a few million dollars in bank loan costs. And if you have a few million dollars in bank loan costs that you're saving, if you then end up spending, say, 300000 or 400000 uh, on fixing mistakes that were made, that's still a good deal. So there are plenty of places where fast track makes sense. But man, overall, it's just weird to go out in the project knowing you're going to be making mistakes. Uh, and so it's just not appropriate for most projects, but those projects where the schedule is all important, you know, the, the football stadium where the teams are gonna start playing at a date or high school or that has to be done before the students show up, or like I said, these carrying costs, those extreme examples where schedule is all important, but that's clearly not gonna be a good uh, answer for us here. It's gonna save us a lot of time potentially, but we don't know the dollar amount until we're done with the project, uh, which is obviously a big problem. Multiple prime uh, C here is uh, kind of an unusual one. Uh, I'll just tell you right now, it's sort of the unusual one in this list that it's not gonna be the answer. It's one that's useful to know about, uh, it's going to be sort of similar to design, bid, build, where there'll be a moment where the uh, owner architect start and the design process starts. But the whole point of uh, uh, multiple prime is where you're using two different essentially GCs, but because there's more than one, it could be three or more, but um, because you have more than one, you can't call them the general contractor because you know, you can't have two general contractors. So you have two prime contractors. Each of those prime contractors has their own subs. And so it might be a situation where uh, the contractors just aren't big enough. They don't have the capacity to handle the whole project. And so you're getting two different uh, uh, teams to do different parts of the project. Or it might be you're doing a university building that's a lab building and you're going to get one uh, that's really experienced on kind of university buildings and kind of fits in, knows how to fit into the campus, and another contractor that may be focused on uh, the spe specifics of kind of laboratory construction and knows all the technical details. Uh, you know, something like that where you need two different groups of people. So multiple prime, what's really happening is you're going to get to that, that uh, bid moment, and then things are going to break into, uh, into two. And so I'm going to have two different uh, projects working simultaneously uh, through that construction process. So th this one is kind of, it's different for other reasons that don't have to do with uh, speed of the project or cost of the project. And if I was going to say what was the defining characteristic of multiple prime, it would be communication because suddenly I have multiple players. And so the usual way that we uh, communicate with each other becomes really uh, problematic. You have to be very attuned to make sure everybody's on the same page. And the big danger, which I'm sure everybody can immediately imagine, is you know, uh, contractor A, um, multiple, uh, excuse me, prime contractor A says uh, that uh, uh, you know they're going to do all the paving on the uh, for the parking lot and contractor, uh, prime contractor B says, okay, we'll do all the sidewalks. Well, what about all those things that are sort of paving, sort of sidewalks, sort of somewhere in between, or the plantings that go around the sidewalks but are really part of the paving design? Uh, 
like all of those little things that are in between become a huge problem. So communication becomes the big thing. So if you had a question about uh, project delivery uh, that talked about multiple prime, the answer would be make sure the communication is done well, uh, because that would be what they would be talking about in that context. And then uh, for the last one there, design build, uh, that's kind of this unusual one where you're getting into the process. And so you have the owner design builder contract. And essentially your dollar amount is known very early because what you're saying is we're not going through a whole design process and then bidding it out and then choosing a builder. We've actually chosen the builder as part of the original process and they've given us a price. So instead of designing it and then pricing to the design, what we're saying is here's a price and now we're going to design and build it to the price. And so it's a kind of reverse way of engineering the process. Uh, and the big advantage, uh, a couple different advantages, one is I know the price very early, which is very useful, uh, and potentially uh, I can go faster. And so I can be uh, probably not as fast as fast track, but I can probably do it uh, faster than design, bid, build. So each of these different ones has advantages and disadvantages. Our question is really looking for being comfortable and assured that we've got the lowest cost. Well, out of all of these, uh, I can be sure that we've got the lowest cost by using design, bid, build, because we've gone through the effort of designing it out, we know that we've got the right building for the for the owner because they've been part of the SD discussions and DD discussions. They've been deeply involved. We've then had the uh, multiple bidders. We got a high bid. We got a low bid. We got a couple in between. We can tell what the low bid really is uh, based on the actual needs of the client. Uh, in that case, that's definitely going to be the sort of logical answer. If I was looking for something of all about schedule, it might've been fast track. If I, this was a question about communication and, and uh, sort of complexity, it might've been multiple prime. If it was about being sure that they knew the dollar amount early, um, so not necessarily that it was going to be the lowest dollar, but that they would have the, the decision about what that uh, cost was going to be early, well then that's probably gonna be design build because we can guarantee that cost early on. It's one of the big advantages of design build. So the whole point here is your role in this process is not to make those decisions. It's the owner's decision to make, but when you're part of that team, kind of figuring out how the project is going to get managed, how the contracts are going to work, uh, who's communicating with who, uh, you should have opinions to be helpful for that owner in that situation. All right, I'm gonna move along. Question number two. The project manual for that Village Hall project has uh, various components. Which of the following would likely be included? Got three that apply. So, okay, uh, project manual. Most of us, when we're sort of talking in kind of layman's terms, we'll say the spec or the specification or the specification book, sometimes we call it. But effectively, the project manual uh, is the technical term for that document. And it has more than just the specifications in it. It actually has quite a few things in it. And the specifications is just one thing. It just happens to be the long part of it. So the bulk of the project manual is the specifications, but there's many other uh, components on there. Uh, typically, the contract documents, the documents that are put out into the world for uh, construction and for uh, uh, kind of moving a project along, those uh, contract documents uh, and the bid documents, uh, often subset of contract documents, uh, that those bid documents include the project manual and then the drawing sets. These days it's getting a little complicated because the drawing sets are in the sort of usual typical mode of floor plan sections, elevations, wall sections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but often now are also including uh, 3D models. And so it's getting a little bit different and I wouldn't be surprised if down the road, some of these questions become a little more complex. But right now the contracts are all still pretty much focused on 
the traditional way of uh, doing this. And so you'll get pretty traditional uh, questions and answers unless the question is clearly leading you away from that. So we have the project manual and we have the uh, um, contract document uh, drawing sets, the construction drawings. Those two things make up the bid sets and make up the uh, 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 contract documents that get given out to potential bidders. So the question is, of the not the drawing part, but of the project manual, what's included? So we can just kind of look through pretty quickly. Uh, one, we have uh, A here is the construction schedule. Well, I can tell you that is absolutely not part of the, contra uh, the project manual. And the reason it's not part of the project manual is because uh, we, the architects, are the ones who are putting together the project manuals uh, and the construction schedule is being put together by the general contractor in their bid documents. Uh, so they are uh, responding to the bid document package that you put together and they are gonna give a price and they're gonna give a schedule. Uh, now, in reality, often the schedule doesn't really happen in that moment. It happens more as part of a negotiation afterwards. But technically, when they're responding to their bids, uh, they're responding with price and with uh, schedule. So the responsibility of the timeline of the construction falls very clearly in the uh, general contractor's realm. You, as the architect, are not responsible for the contractor timeline unless this was design build and it's one entity and then you would be, but it would say design build in the question if that was uh, going to be an issue. So absolutely, uh, the construction schedule is not part of your production that would go into the project manual. Uh, instruments of service is a really interesting term and one that you should absolutely know. It fits very uh, strongly to the uh, project management concept. Uh, so instruments of service is the uh, legal technical term for all of the work that you as the architect do for a potential client, for, for a client. So you're doing all of those you know, drawings and the project manual, all those contract documents and everything, but you're also doing research for the client. You're figuring out the code analysis. You're uh, maybe doing a bunch of different sketches for different ways that the reception hall might be laid out. You're doing a whole series of different things that aren't going to end up being seen by the uh, bidding contractors or the contractor in the end, but there's work that you had to do in order to do the project. So the instruments of service is all of that work. The parts of your work that aren't included in the instruments of service would be the things that you would do anyway. So maybe you're doing general research on sustainability or going to conferences or uh, other things like that. Well, that's all research and work, but it's not work specifically for a particular client. So the instruments of service are the whole thing for a particular client. And it becomes a very important uh, concept if, for example, something ends up going wrong and the project stops uh, and uh, you, uh, you know, the, there's, a, there's a break between the owner and, and the architect, uh, with, there's a, you know, a system in the contracts that allows that, uh, that contract to get broken uh, and the owners will have rights to the instruments of service of the architects, uh, but only the instruments of service for their project, the work that the architect did on that project. So they have rights to stuff even beyond the stuff that they've seen to the memos and the sketches and all of that uh, up to that point where the uh, contract got, uh, got uh, terminated. So the project manual is part of the instruments of service, the drawing set, the, the construction drawing set is part of the instruments of service, but so are quite a few other things. So instruments of service is too vague of a term in this context to really make sense. It's not one of the answers, um, but it is an important term for you to get to know. The owner contractor agreement. So this is the uh, what we would, if you're using the AIA documents, think of as the A101 
there's a bunch of different uh, versions of this, the A101, the A103, the A107, there's a whole bunch of different ones, but the A101 is the flagship um, and it's the big standard uh, owner contractor agreement. Uh, and that is absolutely part of the project manual because as you're sending these things out for bid and as the project is being run, uh, the project manual has that in there because it's one of the main uh, things defining how the project is going to go forward. And so it's important for the bid, it's important for uh, construction administration, and it would definitely be part of the project manual. So owner contractor agreement, absolutely in there. Shop drawings, um, you spend a great deal of time as an architect thinking about shop drawings, uh, everybody's least favorite job, uh, but the shop drawings are absolutely something that somebody else is producing. So you're putting down a, a reflected ceiling plan and it's showing uh, the, where the, all the joists, uh, all the trusses are gonna go but then somebody's gonna actually do a set of drawings about those trusses and show where every bolt is and where uh, all those pieces are going. And that's gonna be the folks who are making those trusses. So the general contractor is getting their supplier to produce drawings. There's lots of different kinds of shop drawings, so it's not always exactly that, but something along those lines. And then those drawings are gonna come back to you, you're gonna review them and look to make sure that the intent of the project is reflected uh, in those shop drawings. So it's something that you're going to be reviewing uh, as well as the general contractor will be reviewing uh, and it's an important part of the process, but it's not something that would be in the project manual because for one, you wouldn't have them yet. Uh, it would be well into the uh, construction process typically um, uh, before too much of the shop drawings came to you. But it's also, it's not something that the architect is producing. It's something that's being produced from the general contractor side uh, as the architect then has to make sure that it's following the intent of the, the, the design process. So not shop drawings, which means clearly it is the specifications. And as we said at the beginning, we even just call this book the specification book or the spec book usually. So clearly that's part of it. And then the addenda is the other one. And that's part of the bid process. We make a series of uh, bid documents if you imagine if you just had a series of drawings that you put together and you just sent them out to a bunch of uh, potential contractors, you know, you'd get all kinds of different numbers. Um, so you need to organize that process and put it together in a sort of clear format and be very clear about how you want them to respond. So that's referred to as the bid package. And so, you know, do you want just a big number? Do you want it broken down by trade? Do you want, uh, you know, is it the whole building or is it the whole building with a deduct for the swimming pool pavilion because maybe you're not gonna be able to afford that. Like what's the process of the numbers that you wanna get back so that you can get apples to apples uh, and help the owner uh, go through those numbers and be able to choose a, a good uh, bidder that could become the general contractor. Well, so through that whole process, uh, it's very likely that you're gonna get questions. And one of the sort of classic uh, NCARB uh, questions that you can get is, uh, okay, uh, during the bid, the contractor asks you a question, should you answer it? And the answer is always no, you should never answer the contractor's question during uh, the bid process. What you do is you collect all of the questions and then you produce a document called an addenda and then you answer the questions in that document and then send it out to all of the bidders. So you never have one bidder who has more information than any other bidders. Uh, and so the addenda then gets folded into and becomes part of the bid package, which is also part of uh, the contract documents, which is also part of a subset of the instruments of service. All right, so owner contractor agreement, specifications and addenda. Thanks, Mike, I think we're doing good. On, uh, on questions, so you can keep going. Cool. All right, uh, number three, an important role of the architect is to manage the design team producing the design, including mechanical, electrical, and plumbing, MEP, engineers. Uh, what is the most effective way to produce a clear and integrated MEP design? Um, so this one is, uh, you're gonna get questions like this, um, which is you know why we put this in here. 
Uh, they may be a little more involved, they may have a little more information in them, but the gist of it is almost always going to be uh, that there'll be some reasonable answers, but the answer you're really supposed to give is the one that talks about how do you make this uh, more organized, more of a system of discussion where everybody's always on the same page. Uh, NCARB, AIA, all these uh, organizations are wanting to sort of get away from uh, architects kind of going out uh, and being cowboys and uh, doing projects and then trying to get the engineers to fit things in and uh, they want it to be more engaged of a discussion in order for us to get better, smarter, uh, more potentially innovative kinds of projects. So uh, I'm just going to answer this one for you. The answer here is going to be C. And this seems like such a sort of blah answer, but I guarantee you you're going to get a question that is something like this on a topic like this. Uh, so the answer that I, that is uh, that I'm saying is the correct one is schedule regular meetings through the design process to make sure that all the team members are on the same page and leave open opportunities to innovate. So leaving open opportunities to innovate sort of refers to the idea that if I design a whole project all the way through uh, design development, now I'm getting into CDs and uh, we're only just now engaging uh, the MEP engineers, well, they have to just sort of fit into whatever you've given to them, the, the space you've given them, the, the concepts that you've given them, and you haven't had any chance for somebody to say, well, you know, this might make sense to be a spot for a double wall that uh, has a, you know, convective air current uh, that we could use to good advantage in this climate, or, uh, you know, we could save money if we, instead of spending all that extra money on the insulation on the roof, if we spent some of the money on better glass or something like that. You could get that information in early, and so you have the opportunity to get some innovation into the design in a way that the architect is just unlikely to have all of the information on. So this concept of regular meetings, uh, you could imagine a question that says, uh, you know, uh, something about taking meeting minutes. Uh, you could imagine a question about, you know, all of these sort of workaday processes, doing uh, design logs, every change in design should be logged in on a design log. All of these things sound unbelievably boring, but if you're managing the project, in the moment, you're all going to remember what happened in the meeting yesterday, but five months later, when the true price of something comes back and everybody's trying to figure out, wait, why did we choose that? You know, well, if you've had regular meetings, if you've had, you know, meeting minutes, if people have been logging all of the changes, uh, then that information is clear and understood by all involved. And you're not going to lead into uh, legal issues. You're not going to lead into confusion. You're trying to find ways to get the best project uh, with the most input, uh, with everybody being on the uh, same page all the way through. So that it rolls better, smarter, and easier. So some of the other answers here, produce full, clear design development drawings for the engineers to fit their systems into. <clears throat> That's sort of a classic old school way of doing this. Uh, when I first came into the business, that was clearly what we did most of the time. Uh, and it's absolutely not the way that we wanna be thinking about it now. Uh, have a third party reviewer go through the MEP drawings prior to submission for a permit. Great idea, totally um, could make sense not only for MEP, but for architecture, for structure, anything like that, having third-party reviewers can be a very useful process just to get a different set of eyes. It might be somebody else in your own office who hasn't worked on it, so it's a fresh set of eyes, or it might be somebody outside the firm. That's a great idea, but it's not really what this question is about, so that one's not it. And then that last one, uh, having in-house mechanical engineering teams, uh, MEP teams, uh, you know, you'll see some people will say, well, that's go going to make uh, the need for regular meetings uh, unnecessary. Anybody who's ever worked in an office knows that you still need to have the regular meetings so that everybody's on the same page. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's 
potentially a good idea. All of these are potentially good ideas, except for the first one. Um, but the best answer is definitely going to be uh, answer C. Mike, uh, we did have a, a one question come through. I think it was related to probably the prior question, but uh, uh, is it the architect's job to confirm that the bidders have received the addenda? And then the second part of the question was also if the lower lowest bidder comes in over budget, are they allowed to withdraw their bid? If the lower lowest bidder comes in over budget, under budget, over budget, over budget, um, are they allowed to withdraw their bid? I just so, assume. So it's the questions are very complex, um, which uh, they sound like simple questions, but the real thing comes into well, what kind of project is this? Um, uh, if you're talking about like a uh, you know some regular person, some regular company is doing a, an office building or something, and they're uh, you know bidding out to a bunch of potential bidders, uh, the there is. Uh, depending on how the wording of the bid package is done, um, there is a legal aspect to somebody putting in a, a bid uh, that they really do need to stand behind those numbers. Um, but, uh, you know, the owner can also choose any of them, right? They can do whatever they want. Uh, your job is to help them in that process and to help them look not only at the numbers, but at the recommendations and uh, you know, does this contractor, do they have experience in this kind of construction? Uh, you know, so you're helping them understand the whole realm of that's coming in of information. Uh, and the owner can say, you know, this one's, you know, uh, contractor A is the lowest, but contractor C, you know, when you read the recommendations from previous owners who have worked with them, uh, they're just glowing. So you might be like, well, you know, okay, yeah, we might save a little bit with A, but their recommendations aren't anywhere near as good. I want to go with the one that I'm going to feel comfortable with, who's going to really take care of me, right? They can make that decision anytime they want. But if I'm in certain situations, for example, um, uh, you know, a municipality doing a, a school, or in this case, a village hall, um, if you're, uh, there's a like, potentially a legal setup that has to do, that's very prescribed, and you might be required to take the low bid. Um, in those cases, those would be sealed bids and it'd be very uh, legal and specific process. And when they're submitting the bid, they would be signing and like uh, affirming that they would um, absolutely be meeting uh, the responsibilities of this bid. Um, I have seen situations where uh, I, many years ago I was doing a project and that was a state-funded project and the bids were open and the low bid uh, came in like 30% lower than everybody else and he realized that he made a mistake in the opening of the bids um, and there was a whole discussion about could he back out uh, of that and the answer was legally no. Um, in the end they found a loophole and kind of let him out because they just didn't want to work with somebody who was absolutely losing money and would therefore try to, you know, uh, uh, would be a bad uh, partner on the process, but they had to find a legal way to do that uh, because that particular setup and that that was in uh, Massachusetts and it was set up in a way that didn't allow you to, for you to just choose a different um, uh, bidder than the low. And the reason that they do that is they don't want, uh, you know, you don't want the mayor choosing their brother-in-law who's double the price of the low bid and you know, that kind of thing. Um, these days, because there's so many different models for how to build stuff, there are actually a number of municipalities and states that have modified things that you don't always have to choose the low anymore. However, you will always have to justify those things. It's very different if you're a private company or a private citizen, you have way more freedom. All right, there was a first question there, Mark, and I blanked on what it was. Oh, the opening of the, uh, do, do we have to uh, guarantee that the um, bidders have received the addenda? Right. Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't know that we are required to guarantee that, um, but it, usually you would send those things both electronically and uh, like a certified mail um, because you would want to make sure that everybody had uh, the the correct information from just from the architects wanting to make sure that you're getting apples to apples uh, you 
you know, it's very likely that you would just follow up with a phone call and say, hey, did you get it? But I actually don't know whether there's a requirement. I would have to look into the uh, uh, contracts a little more closely um, to whether there's a, an actual legal requirement that you would have to do as long as you did everything you sort of reasonably should to make sure that they got them. I would imagine that's enough, but um, but there may be other requirements. Somebody else out in the thing may know, and they may be able to respond if they've dealt with that issue recently. It's a fascinating question. But um, to, to sort of long answer short, um, uh, there's lots of different kinds of bidding processes. Some are super informal, and you know you might be standing out in the field, and somebody says, "Yeah, I could do this for you for four hundred thousand." And well, that's a bid process. It's just informal. Uh, other ones might be highly formalized with lots of legal structures and very little opportunity for maneuvering and backing out of anything. Uh, and there's uh, everything in between uh, on those. So it's all about understanding what the question is really asking you in this context or in out in the field, understanding what the specific requirements are in that scenario. Very good, thanks, Mike. Okay, question four. The architect has been selected for a multifamily project where the owner's construction budget is 6.2 million. The fees allowed by the funder for the entire design team is 7.5% of the owner's construction budget, which includes the following breakdown. Approximately how much of the money can the architect allocate towards their portion of the schematic design of the project? So we have to do some quick calculations here. Um, this is a very simple, like this is a math project you might get in, uh, you know, freshman year in high school or even earlier than that, this is junior high. Um, so this is very simple ideas uh, here. The only trick is like, do you understand what it is they're talking about? So you understand uh, how all these numbers fit to each other. So the gist of this is there's a budget and that budget is 6.2 million. Uh, and there's uh, an allowable funding of 7.5% uh, of that uh, overall budget that can go to the entire design team. Uh, so if we did that as a calculation, uh, that's going to be so 6.2 million times 0 0.075. And I think, what was that? And I, did it a little while ago, uh, 465. Um, so that's an interesting number. Uh, we look over here uh, at this sort of uh, percentage. We add all these up. That's going to add up to 7.5%. But the question was asking, okay, what can the architect allocate towards their portion of the work? The 7.5, this 465,000, sorry, I lost a zero there. Uh, that 465,000, that's regarding the overall number. The one we really care about is the architect's portion, and that's that 3.5%. So let's do this calculation again. And that's going to get us, what, 217, I believe it is. So the architect's portion that's allowable in this uh, from the funder is 3.5% of the overall construction budget, which is the 6.2 million. It gets us to 217,000. So now the question is, what's the question really about? Well, it's about the schematic design, the SD of the project. We look over here and we've got uh, the project is broken out uh, in percentages. SD is allowed for 15%. Um, this set of numbers, 15, then 20% for design development, 45% for contract documents, 5% for bidding, and 15% for construction administration. Those are pretty typical numbers. Um, you will see though that there's a big push to change these numbers uh, to increase the SD um, percentage, uh, given the fact that when you're doing a lot of BIM modeling um, and uh, other 3D model types, uh, that that pushes up front uh, quite a lot of the time. 
And so reducing some of the time in DD and CDs, but increasing the SD. Uh, but like I said on the previous question, that may be true, but it's not happening yet on the exam unless it specifically is telling you that that's what it's doing. Uh, so the assumption would be that you'd be using these fairly standard traditional numbers, 15% for schematic design of your time, 20% uh, uh, DD, et cetera. Now, this is important because if you spend 40% of your fee worth of time only doing schematic design, well, that means you have to do everything else with the remaining 60%. Uh, so if you're overspending your time, well, then, you know, things are clearly out of whack. And you might say, well, who cares? In the end, as long as I get it all done for the, you know, total 100%, it doesn't really matter. Well, that's true, except what happens when a project goes under for whatever reason. Uh, so for some reason, the owner and the architect end up breaking up and you've gotten to the end of SD and you're trying to bill 40% of your fee because that's how much time you spent uh, and they're saying well you know too bad the contract here says sd is only 15 percent we'll pay you 15 the total of 15 percent um, so if things go wrong you want things to be roughly accurate uh, to how the project is going plus you also don't want to get behind and then you know you're going over budget at the end so all right we have 15 percent so if we kind of imagine 217 times 0.15, and that's going to equal, again, I'm remembering this, but I believe it's 32,550. Uh, we go up and we take a look, and there's B, 32,000 worth of time. That's going to be the one that's approximately the correct answer. Uh, and so what that's telling us is a project of 6.2 million with uh, overall team fee of 7.5% of that, which is 465,000, but the architect's allotment of that uh, potential, the maximum is going to be uh, 217, which means 15% uh, for the schematic design of that 217 is going to be about 32,000. Uh, and so what we're saying is you have about $32,000 worth of time to do the schematic design. So that's the answer for this. Kind of interestingly, you could imagine the next question, which be, would be, okay, you have $32,000 worth of time for schematic design. How many hours of time is that? Like, what does that equal? And the answer there, that's going to depend on whether uh, you, who you have working on the project. So if I have a principal who's being billed out at, say, $250 uh, a billable hour, well, I'm going to use up that $32,000 pretty fast. I'm going to use up that $32,000 pretty quickly um, by having that uh, very high price billable hour person, that principal, working on the project. But if instead I was, uh, you know, having an intern work on it, and maybe their billable rate is, say, $75 an hour, and so in other words, you know, significantly lower, cost per hour, I'm going to have way more hours. And obviously, I'm probably not going to want to have a situation where I'm billing out all at 250 because I'm going to run out of time. And I'm probably not going to want to have a situation where I'm only having the intern work on a big $6.2 million project. There's going to be a mix of people, the principal all the way down to the intern, including the project architect and the uh, project manager and staff architects and uh, other designers. And they're all being billed at different rates. And so when you say $32,000 worth of time, that is actually a really complex question of, well, how much time is that equal to? It depends on who is working on it. And a big part of project management is uh, kind of laying out that process for a particular project. So you would try to figure out, well, we think we can do this with, you know, uh, uh, 40 hours of the project architect, uh, 50 hours of modeling time with the intern and another staff architect, uh, and then uh, you know seven hours of uh, the principal uh, doing sort of you know original conceptualizations and kind of you know walking through the project with the team, uh, and then you know 20 hours of kind of uh, you know figuring out if, if everything is 
kind of been done you know correctly well those are all different dollar amounts and you would add them up and you try to keep that to that 32,000 so you would do that for schematic design for design development for the CDs you'd make your best guesses and then you'd review it at the edge end of each of those stages or actually all the way through but definitely at the end of each of those stages so if if you ended up spending say 40,000 worth of time for schematic design that would mean okay that's great you know we got maybe a good schematic design but now we're 8,000 behind and we're going to have to find that time which is money somewhere in these other percentages so suddenly our other percentages have dropped down because our 15 went up so you could get asked this kind of question from any number of those different angles and it's probably really worth your time to think about what does billable hour mean and how does that work uh, and how does that fit into kind of a management uh, thinking leftover dollar sign there okay uh, question number five uh, the project manager or project architect should perform a code analysis to start a project when should the architectural team review this code analysis so a little while ago I was referring to the uh, desire on NCARB and AIA and all these other organizations part to sort of regularize and and get these things um, away from kind of the Howard Rourkean cowboy architect kind of idea and into more regular uh, systemization. Uh, and there's a few different ways you can start to think about that. If I'm starting to do a project, uh, I'm going to want to make sure that we do a code analysis. I'm probably also going to want to make sure that we do a budget analysis. I'm probably also going to want to make sure we do a programming analysis. I might also be interested in uh, what the community relation analysis point is here. That might be part of programming. It might be its own thing. I might be interested in a sustainability analysis, like where is the project stance on sustainability issues. Uh, there's any number of different ones, but I'm absolutely going to do a code analysis, a budget analysis, and a programming analysis. Now, technically, the budget is actually part of programming, but it's such an important part in this way, I'm going to pull it out as uh, separate. So I'm uh, even before I do any work, uh, the pre-project, I can't really even start sketching uh, until I have an idea about the budget, right? I, I can't really, like there's no point in sketching a $5 million house if the client only has $200,000. Uh, so I have to understand something about uh, the budget before we get going. I have to understand something about the program. Like what are they really looking for? What is it we're designing? What are, what's the point of what we're doing? What are the goals uh, that have been set in the program? Uh, I need before we can start really even thinking about it uh, and any doing any analysis, I need to understand the program. Well, same is true with uh, code. Uh, you know, if we're starting to think about, well, you know, where can this sit on the site? And, uh, you know, can we even actually do this project with this use in this district? Or are we going to be required to try to change the code or do some other things that, that we would need to do? So we're gonna be doing a code analysis before we even start. So pre, yep, we're doing a code analysis, we're doing a budget analysis, we're doing a programming analysis. All right, and then we get through SD and we're done with SD uh, and we wanna take that moment and go back through and say, all right, we looked before we started at the code, now we've learned more, we know no, more about the building, we know more about the site, we know more about the municipality, presumably, uh, we're going to want to check our code analysis and look at it again and make sure that we're still in line with uh, the way that we had analyzed it to begin with. And we may now have to change the code analysis. We may know more about something and can be more accurate. And same is going to be true about budget. Uh, just because we looked at the budget at the very, very beginning, doesn't mean that our SD is gonna meet that budget. So we're gonna probably do some sort of cost analysis 
which is kind of like a cost estimate. It's sort of the architect's terminology for cost estimate um, that has a slightly different legal understanding. So we're going to look at that budget and we're going to say, all right, we said we we're going to do this for, uh, I don't know if you use the previous one, uh, 6.2 million. We look at the SD drawings, we can do a per square foot cost and we can figure out, do, are we on track for meeting that budget? And then equally, we're gonna look at those SD drawings and say, well, did we meet the goals of the program? Uh, do we have the correct spaces? Do we have enough room for everybody that's outlined in the program? Are we redefining the program? Because now we know more information, but we're definitely going to be reviewing the program. Well, we get through design development. You betcha we're gonna be going back through the code uh, we're going to be making sure that everything still fits, that we're getting the exit distances that we need, uh, all of those kinds of issues that have now shown up. We now have more information about. We're going to be looking at our budgeting and we're going to be doing a more detailed cost analysis to make sure that we think at least that we're still on track to meet that same budget. And we're reviewing uh, all the changes that have happened in the programming process because we now have so much more information. So we're constantly setting up systems for reviewing these information. Like I said, there might be other topics, sustainability, uh, community relations, uh, uh, you know, context, any number of different uh, things could be part of this kind of analysis. And then you get to CDs and yeah, you're gonna be checking the code. And one of the ways you're gonna be checking the code is you're gonna get a permit. Um, but obviously before you go out for a permit, you're gonna wanna do a quick review and make sure that everything's still in line. You're going to check the budget and the way you're going to do that is by bid uh, so you're going to bid it out but you're probably going to want to also do a little check before you go and bid it out to make sure the budget still seems like you should get uh, the correct thing and then the programming nobody's no client no owner is going to sign off unless they're actually getting the project that they need uh, and so you're going to be reviewing with the client and they're going to do a sign off uh, on the programming as well so the ones that are really the key here are going to be in these design phases. So right there. Um, will you do it at the time of signing the owner architect agreement? Yeah, maybe you've done it before, before that. So that's possible, but it wouldn't be the only time. Would you do it after design development? Absolutely. It's just that it wouldn't be the only time. And would you do it during construction administration? Um, yeah, there are times when you're going to be reviewing the code analysis but those would be very specific and small scale issues like all of the major code analysis issues will have been done long before that point uh, and so it's really during uh, each of the design phases all right all right very good thank you mr newman that was a great one um and uh, of course thank you thanks for everybody for tuning in uh, as I mentioned in our next ARE live broadcast, uh, which is on December 16th of 2021, we'll be hosting a women in architecture panel uh, to discuss the unique challenges women face in the architecture field, particularly around getting licensed. Um, so just posted uh, the link to get to register for that in the chat box, uh, or you can go to blackspectacles.com slash ARE dash live to sign up. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the webinar, we've launched uh, our ARE guarantee. We're so confident that if you use our expert membership to the fullest, you'll pass the ARE. And if you don't, we'll pay for your retake. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about how to qualify for the guarantee uh, or to check out our individual memberships and see what kinds of materials we offer, go to blackspectacles.com. Uh, and we just shared a link in the chat for that. Also to learn more about how you can get your whole firm on a membership and have your boss pay for it, go to blackspectacles.com and go to our pricing section uh, and look up the firm section. The lucky winner of a Black Spectacles t-shirt is Jenny H. Jenny, thank you so much for participating in our community. Uh, we'll reach out to you via email to get your size and shipping information. Uh, just a reminder to everybody, if you'd like to be eligible to win a t-shirt during ARE Live, post a question you have about our featured topic in the community, um, and, uh, uh, and you will uh, be eligible to win a free t-shirt. Uh, remember, our community is always buzzing. Uh, it's not just during ARE Live. Uh, we built it as a resource for you uh, to ask questions as you're studying, as you're preparing to study and so forth. Um, so again, we uh, it's staffed with licensed architects who review uh, the questions that folks have and provide uh, really lovely answers uh, so you can, you know, 
it's kind of like your architecture professor uh, on call in the ARE community, so that's really nice. Uh, and you know, we even post a free practice quiz question for each division in the community every month, so it's also a, new, a good resource um, as you're studying to find some extra, um, you know, sort of study uh, or qu uh, quiz questions to study with. Um, so lastly, uh, be sure to stick around for a few minutes today to take our survey uh, and share any suggestions that you may have for any topics uh, that you might want us to cover uh, in future ARE Live episodes. Uh, we really do read every word that you guys write in those uh, survey responses and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for watching. Mm -hmm.